Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. We're going to get started tonight because I do have some video clips in this lesson. It's easier to get video clips of, you know, teachers in the 20th century and 21st century than it is back in the 1800s. So we have some video clips and audio clips for the lesson tonight, and I want to make sure we have uh, time for all that stuff. Let's go over the four red flags that we've talked about to this point in these uh, false gospels, what to look for with a false gospel, false teaching, a cult, um, because remember there are many legitimate differences that we have with each other as Christians between denominations or even just the same denomination but another church down the road differences that do not make that other that other church or the other pastor or the other movement a cult or a false teacher or uh, a false religion okay there are four red flags you look for top tier prime issues when it comes to labeling something a cult or a false teaching one is the doctrine of god now these blanks aren't on this handout this is the very first one this is just Review, But write it down if you want to. The doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of Scripture, and the doctrine of salvation. So when you're talking about false teaching, a false gospel, what we call a cult, we're looking at those four issues, and you can see that in one or in all of those issues... A false teaching or a false gospel or a false movement goes awry on one or all of those. Okay, so was the Book of Mormon, or with Mormonism, you have the Book of Mormon as a problem with Scripture and Revelation. And as uh, a result of that, you have a problem with your doctrine of God. Um, in Mormonism, he was a man who became God, and we are men who became, can become gods. Christ was his firstborn spirit child, and salvation is this combination of grace and faith and works and climbing your way up that ladder to become a god yourself. So all those red flags pop up for Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and others. Now tonight is uh, different because we're talking about a movement that isn't um, maybe necessarily thought of as a cult, and, and maybe I even would be just shy of putting it in that category though this movement contains a lot of certified false teaching or certified heresies. And we're going to talk about why it's tricky to just label this a cult or a false teaching tonight because we're going to see areas of agreement and then we're going to see areas where these teachers and these movements don't even line up with each other. There's no set creed or confession for this movement. And that is the prosperity gospel. Um, how many are familiar with the term prosperity gospel? Uh, health and wealth gospel, name it, claim it. Um, the historic name that we're going to use tonight is the word faith movement. Is anybody familiar with that, that terminology, the word faith or word of faith movement? Okay, it's all kind of the same stuff, and we're going to look at where those different terminologies and groups come from. Now, I want to say from the outset today 
that I do not know, I, I can say 100% across this room, I don't know what preachers you watch on television. I don't know who you listen to on the radio. I don't know what books are next to your bed or by your, your chair where you read. So I am not intending by naming names of teachers tonight to, to pinpoint you, and you better stop listening or reading that person, though you probably should. I, I don't know <laughs> who that is, okay? So as I name the names and you see the pictures and you have this book, you don't think that I'm going to send the deacons out to your house to, to club you and tar and feather you or anything. Just understand uh, I'm going to present the truth about what these teachers teach and what they believe, and then you, you, it's between your conscience and the Holy Spirit what to do with those resources or that time you have watching TV preachers. I think one of the most popular uh, television icons of the modern prosperity gospel movement is Joel Osteen. Now, Joel Osteen is not an in-your-face prosperity in terms of like Kenneth Copeland. You know, I want a billion dollars. You need to say a billion dollars. Uh, but Joel Osteen is more subtle. It's about, you know, the positive thinking and the positive words and the positive vibes and, and self-empowerment and self-inspiration. Maybe some of the classic faces of the prosperity gospel, the word faith movement would have been TBN, uh, the Crouches, Paul and Jan Crouch, and before them, Jim and Tammy Faye, and, and all that televangelism stuff that happened in the 70s and 80s and 90s was really all within this vein of the word faith, later called the prosperity gospel movement. Another famous figure, I think, would be Benny Hinn. Again, maybe not just in your face with the finances and the money, although that's there in his teaching, but he's more known for the faith healing. Same theology, we'll talk about it in a minute, uh, but, well, his picture will be up there in a moment. It's trying to come up right there. Another one that you may or may not be familiar with is a guy named Stephen Furtick. Anybody heard of Stephen Furtick or Elevation Church? They've become more well-known. That's him down there, bottom right. You probably see him floating around Facebook. People share sermons and sermon clips from him all the time. Very hip, young, cool pastor. Actually went to the same seminary I graduated from. So what happened between the two of us, I, I don't know. But he, he is another face, a younger, hipper, cooler face of this prosperity gospel. And again, it's different from that of Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland. And he's a lot cooler of an individual, you can tell. But it's the same sort of message, positive vibes. You are, uh, you are something special, and all you need to do is realize that and live your potential and your destiny, and that is this kind of modern vibe uh, from the prosperity gospel. And maybe one of the most influential movements for the prosperity gospel in our day and age is Bethel Church. Um, Bethel Church in California, again, very well known for their music, and worship music that, you know, on the surface is n not terrible. <laughs> I mean, there's some good songs, there's some good worship songs, they play them on the radio. Nothing just like in your face false teaching about those things. But if you peel back the curtain a little bit and look at the church that produces that worship music, you see people, and we'll see later some quotes from their leaders. Uh, we, you see a church and a movement that is well in line with this prosperity gospel movement. Joel Osteen quote here um, that kind of summarizes really the word faith movement. Our words have creative power and with our words we can speak blessings over our future or we can speak negative things over our future and you look at that and you say well what's wrong with that and nothing really on the surface is wrong with that statement. Our words have creative power they have some sort of energy of positive or negative thinking 
But when you go into the word of faith way of looking at things, Joel Osteen means this in a very literal way. Your words create reality, bad or good. The good you speak, the bad you speak, have this creative power in and of themselves. Take, for instance, this quote from his book, The Power of I Am. He says, Romans 4 says to call the things that are not as though they were. That simply means that you shouldn't talk about the way you are. And you see, he starts to do his, his biblical exegesis. Talk about the way you want to be. That's not what Romans 4 is about at all, but that's what he says it's about. If you're struggling in your finances, don't go around saying, oh man, business is so slow, the economy is so down, it's never going to work out. That's calling the things that are as if they will always be that way. That's just describing the situation. By faith, you have to say, I am blessed, I am successful, and I am surrounded by God's favor. Now, again, you could look at that and say, well, he's just encouraging you to be positive. There's nothing wrong with that, and I agree there's nothing wrong with thinking positive, being an optimist that gets on my nerves, but there are people who are, who are positive all the time. But if you know the theology, he's going a step beyond that to say it's not just about thinking positively. It's the idea that thinking positively and speaking positively actually changes the outcome. So the reason you are poor and the reason your business is slow is because you keep thinking that way and saying it that way. But if you would change the way you think and change the way you speak, your entire circumstance would change. Uh, another quote here, this one from Joyce Myers. Today, she says, we're going to talk about words. You know, words are containers for power. There's that theology, the word faith, power in the words. They carry creative or destructive power. They carry positive or negative power. We can choose our words, and we should do it carefully. Again, you look at that, and you think, well, she's just talking about saying nice things or not being negative all the time. Nothing wrong with that. I agree. But when you start inserting this idea that your words have this creative power or this destructive power, and so what you say literally changes your circumstances, that is word of faith, prosperity gospel, name it, claim it, teaching. So where's the basis of the whole word of faith movement? Word of faith or word faith movement began within Pentecostalism. Classical Pentecostalism, uh, mainly the, the mainline Pentecostal denominations like the Assemblies of God, the Foursquare Church, uh, was made famous by Amy Simple McPherson. But the word of faith movement has its origins within the Pentecostal charismatic movement. Although its origins are there, it is now, I think anybody would say, the predominant face of modern Christianity. Sadly, when many people around the globe talk about Christian television, what they're often talking about is something like TBN that for a very long time has shamelessly peddled the prosperity gospel. Now, there are good programs on TBN. There are good preachers that have been on TBN. I'm not saying the whole thing's a bust, but by and large, what you're presented with on Christian television is the prosperity gospel, and it is sadly what uh, many people around the world think of when they think of Christianity. I think I read in Christianity Today one time, they, they called it the main import, the main export of American, American Christianity. The main export of American Christianity is the prosperity gospel. In other words, the kind of Christianity that is taking hold in Central and South America, in Asia, and, and very unfortunately all over Africa, 
the main version of Christianity that is taking hold, if you want to call it that, is, is the prosperity gospel and prosperity gospel preachers. According to the Word of Faith movement, sickness, pain, and poverty are caused by a lack of faith. And they'll go to the Gospels, to the instances where Jesus healed someone, and of course he said, your faith has made you well, your faith has saved you. Or he tells the disciples, you did not have faith to do this miracle or to do this thing. And they draw out of that this entire theology that sickness, pain, and suffering, therefore, must all be because of a lack of faith. And if you just had enough faith, you could overcome pain or financial difficulties or physical issues such as sickness and suffering. In fact, if you will just believe and confess, God is obligated, the word faith movement teaches, God is obligated to do it. This goes beyond just praying now. You know, we pray for someone to be healed, and we even confess, God, we know you can do it. We ask you to do it. Even if you don't put the classic sort of Baptist caution pedal on there and say, if it's your will. We don't have to always say that. That's understood. You can just pray for someone to be healed and leave it there at God's, God's feet. But the prosperity gospel says, no, it's not just praying and asking. They use words like declaring. You've heard that before. Or confessing or decreeing as if you are in charge and in their theology you are very much in charge through your faith God has given you that power to be in charge or to take dominion and so by your faith being exercised in what you say you're not just asking you are confessing the thing remember Osteen you are calling the things that are not to be or you're calling the things to be to not be anymore such as sickness or poverty or whatever it is so I said it comes from sort of this muddled background. There, there's no one figure. There's no one date. There's no one book. You know, with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism, we look at one figure, one date, one thing. We see the emergence of this movement. With this one, it's, it's within Pentecostalism, but it takes hold in many different ways. In the late 1800s, you had a rise in what's called an interest in metaphysics. Uh, physics just meaning kind of the order of the natural world, you know, laws of motion and energy and uh, Einstein's relativity, relativity equation, things like that. That's physics, how the world works. Metaphysics just means beyond physics. So the supernatural, the mind, the new age thought, the, the, all this comes out of this, this in the 1800s. Uh, several movements start out because of that. The divine healing movement, whether it's Christian science or the stuff that takes root in Pentecostalism, this whole thing that with your mind, you can overcome sickness, you can overcome pain and suffering, just thinking differently, that's new thought. Uh, or um, the new thought movement itself, which is basically the power of positive thinking. If you can just learn to think different and speak different, your life will be different. All that's coming into this. Uh, a guy named E.W. Kenyon, though, is credited as the first influencer of this movement. I think that's my battery going in and out. Let me change that while y'all write down the next blank. Kenyon was heavily influenced by the New Thought movement. All right, so E.W. Kenyon, who's pictured there in your handout, was a preacher, teacher, that had embraced um, portions of what we call the New Thought movement. And again, the New Thought movement wasn't a Christian movement necessarily. 
but it began to impact Christian thinkers and preachers and teachers. And again, the root of the New Thought movement was basically, if you can just think differently, your life will be different. So you can overcome sickness by simply thinking it away. Are you anyway familiar with Christian, the Christian science movement, Mary Baker Eddy, the Church of Christian Science? Not Scientology, but a different sort of thing. This is their whole thing, refusing medical treatment, not going to the doctors because they believe if they just have enough faith and think differently, they'll overcome that sickness or whatever it is. All of this is influencing Kenyon. Kenyon then goes on to influence another Christian Pentecostal preacher named Kenneth Hagin. Not to be confused with Kenneth Copeland, although he will be in this as well, Kenneth Hagin. Anybody familiar with Kenneth Hagin? Based out of Kansas, the Rima Bible Institute. Um, he might have been more famous after the fact for his uh, drunkenness and the Holy Spirit stuff and the, the wild laughter and dancing around in church and stuff. He was kind of the father of that too. Hagen took this sort of Christianized version of new thought, think better, live better, speak better, live better, healing, finances, all that kind of stuff, and popularized the message within mainstream Christianity. So the doctrinal boundaries were such in these Pentecostal systems that there wasn't too much accountability in terms of what preachers would teach or preach. And so Kenneth Hagin, I think at that time a very popular Assemblies of God pastor, and his church a pretty predominant, uh, pretty dominant Assemblies of God church in Kansas, I think, still there, um, brought this sort of new age, new thought, Christian-y stuff and basically fused it with Pentecostal teaching. So whereas you look today, uh, it's not, not always, but in many cases, it's pretty much just synonymous with popular Pentecostalism and just kind of bought wholesale into all this. So that's Kenneth Hagin right there. Maybe you've seen his, his, his face before. His main teaching that kind of sparked the word faith movement is this, that faith is a force Faith is not just uh, biblical trust in something. When we talk about biblical faith, we're talking about putting our trust in Christ or the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. We give those biblical definitions. The word faith movement changes the definition altogether. It's not just trust in something. It becomes this powerful working force that you can use or you can not use. This force to change things, for good or bad, is activated by your words. It's activated by speaking things, hence word faith, the word faith movement. So you will have what you believe for and what you claim. Now you see, you see the new thought movement there, don't you? Change the way you think, change your life. The power of positive thinking, the power of attractional thinking. Uh, and, and all that, of course, being influenced by Eastern mysticism and Eastern religions, like the Hindu doctrine of karma, that you put good into the universe, you'll get good out of the universe. You put bad into the universe, you get bad out of the universe. We even say this without even thinking it, don't we? We kind of use this Christian-y, New Age version in our own thought. Uh, we're sending thoughts, sending thoughts and prayers. And we, what we mean is, I'm thinking about you. But that comes from this new thought movement. I'm sending positive vibes. I'm not e a lot of sickness here lately, and all of us in the staff, we've been saying, I'm not even going to say that. I'm not even going to put it out there. 
That's, that's this idea of a put good out, put good out and get good back. If I put bad out, I'm going to get bad back. That's new thought, Eastern mysticism. You just take that and put a Christian bow on it. This is what you get. That faith is this force that actually works for you that you can choose to activate with your thoughts and with your words. So if you believe something enough and you claim it in Jesus' name, of course, you will have it. Unlike many movements, it's hard to trace this movement back to a particular founder or date because so many different forms of this teaching already existed. Like we just talked about with the divine healing movement or existing Pentecostal denominations or the new thought movement. All these things were kind of existing out there. Hagen and others just Christianized them and then spread them. So whereas with the Mormon church or the Jehovah's Witnesses or even Christian science or Scientology, you have a founder, you have a set doctrine, you have maybe a book that guides what they believe, you have this set system that clearly identifies who they are, where they started, why they're different. You don't really have that with the word faith movement because it rises up from within the assemblies of God or the churches of God or other Pentecostal denominations. And so you have some assemblies of God churches back in the 20th century that may have bought into this. You had some that may not have bought into that. You had some Pentecostal churches that did not go that route. You had many that did. And now you have many, sadly, just regular evangelical, even Southern Baptist churches using this language and using this theology without knowing that that's what they've bought into, whether it's because of the the music or, or the teachings or the books or whatever it is. With the organization of this movement, there's no one denomination. It's many different denominations, primarily Pentecostal or charismatic. But its influence is everywhere, and that's just a picture of Lakewood Church, uh, Joel Osteen's church at the Compact Center in Houston on a regular Sunday morning service. Thousands and thousands and thousands, and around the world we see that. Radio, television, and the internet grew the movement. They were some of the first preachers and teachers to make use of radio and television to spread the message. And in their minds, spreading the gospel. And because of God's grace and sovereignty in it all, many people were were reached and were saved with the true gospel because of some of these very preachers and teachers. But there was also this baggage that came with it. Uh, with this movement. Christian music and bookstores spread the message even further. Uh, There was a long time in which you could still find Joel Osteen books at Lifeway. And then I think suddenly, shortly before I started working there in my hometown in 2007, just shortly before that, they had stopped selling Joel Osteen books at Lifeway. But you could still go to Lifeway, a Southern Baptist publishing bookstore, and purchase books by Joyce Meyer or uh, maybe even Benny Hinn. I know T.D. Jakes was there. Uh, Many of these more popular word, faith, prosperity, gospel preachers and teachers, they yanked Joel Osteen books off the shelf, but many of those other books were still there. And of course, it's all in the music of Hillsong or Bethel. And again, there are some good songs by Hillsong. There are some good songs by Bethel, but it's tainted with this stuff. And uh, that's why we're very careful in our church about what we sing and what we don't sing. 
because while the song might be well and good, and I do love some Hillsong praise and worship songs from back in the day, and even some of the new ones, you have to understand what church is coming from, what those pastors teach, what they're pushing, and it's all within this stuff. Sadly, many, many Christians do not listen to their music or read the books or watch Christian television with that kind of discernment that we should have to understand how much this stuff has infiltrated all of that. So what about these red flag areas? What does the word faith movement teach about the doctrine of God? And this is where it gets complicated because on the surface, many, if not all, word faith teachers and preachers are orthodox on the surface. You go to Stephen Furtick's church's website and read their statement of faith. You would probably see a pretty basic statement of faith on the doctrine of God. Same thing for Benny Hinn, if he still pastors a church, I know he used to in Orlando, uh, a pretty basic Christian statement on who God is. And so on the surface you have, well, just a regular old belief in God, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's no one creed or confession that you look at for, there's no word faith denomination. There might be movements and there might be multiple churches that belong, you know, sort of to one church, but there's not one big denomination. You say, that's the word faith denomination, and this is their creed. But what you get in the end is what I've called a mixed bag of, of heresies, because you never know what they're going to say. Benny Hinn was famous for being on TBN one time and saying that even within the Trinity, every single member of the Trinity has its own Trinity. So within the being of the Father, there are three. Within the being of the Son, there are three. And there, being within the Spirit, there are three. And Paul Crouch, I think, who was doing the interview, says, you mean there are nine? He says, yes, nine. I mean, and so this is the kind of stuff that, you know, you go to his website, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but then you say that stuff. It's hard to say this is what they believe about God. Kenneth Copeland also is very famous for saying that God uh, is very much like you and me, a man that weighs about 200-something pounds, stands six feet tall, has a span of nine inches in his hands, and, uh, and you just say, well, where are you pulling this from? Where are you getting this stuff? And I think he got it from Isaiah, that he measures the heaven with the span of his hands and all this stuff. And so it's hard to just say this is what this movement believes about God because in any given sermon or in any given lecture, they'll just say, hey, here's something new and then throw something like that out there that's technically um, heresy. Uh, God created, according to the word faith movement, God created by speaking things using the force of faith. So you say, where do they get this word creativity power stuff from? Well, they get it from Genesis, that God created the universe by speaking. And the power that he used to create with his speaking was the power of faith. So that God was able to exercise faith with his words and create everything that there is. And so just like God, you have this power because you have been made in his image. We agree with that statement, man is made in the image of God. What the word faith movement teaches by this, though, is that just as God created with his words using faith, you can also create realities by speaking words and using faith. So just like God said, let there be light, you can say, let there be money, or let there be healing, 
or whatever it is that you're trying to, to call down from heaven. And if you watch and listen to the teachers, they're big on that. You've got to say it. You've got to speak it. You've got to command it and decree it with your words because your words with the faith is what makes the stuff happen. And God's given you that power because that's how he operates. In fact, God is contractually obligated to do as man says. God has bound himself to work that way. So they say when you declare or confess or decree something, now here's the catch, if you have full faith and don't doubt, God is absolutely obligated to do what you've asked him to do, not asked, decreed, and commanded him to do. In fact, God is powerless to do anything without man's declaration. And this is, this is Word of Faith Teaching 101. God is up there. God wants to heal you. God wants to bless you. God wants to give you this. God wants to give you that. God wants to give you the promotion. God wants to enhance your finances or heal your loved one. He wants to do it, but he can't unless you believe enough and unless you believe and confess it enough. Not only is he obligated to do what we ask in faith, but he can't do anything unless we ask or confess it in faith. Ultimately, according to the word faith movement, this is classical word faith theology now. I'm not saying that every single teacher would agree with this, but we're going to see in a minute it was pretty widespread at one time. Ultimately, men are little gods because of their dominion and creating power. In other words, when God said, let us make man after our image, they say that's very literal. That just like cows made cows and cats made cats, God made little gods. And just like he created using his words and his faith, you as a little G God can do the exact same thing. And so whatever is confessed in faith must be done by God. So it's not just, oh Lord, please heal them. It is, I decree healing. And you hear this language, right? We bind sickness. I bind cancer. Or I, I can't, one of the, my, my favorites was I cancel the assignment of the enemy. I cancel what Satan is doing and I decree and I confess healing and prosperity and life. Beyond asking, beyond praying, it is decreeing and confessing and declaring things to be so. So I want you to listen to, to Jesse Duplantis uh, about God creating Adam. And it's funny He's an entertaining guy, but listen to just the junk that is behind all of this. Listen, man, you got no sense about God. You know where all his artwork came from? God. God was a sculpture. He sculptured Adam out of the dirt. Just like Michelangelo sculptured the La Pieta out of marble. But what happens is it's a statue. But when God finished, he breathed life. All of a sudden, Adam opens his eyes. He's a speaking spirit. Are you ready for this? But God didn't quit forming stuff out the dust. He created all kinds of animals, but he didn't know what they was. What is that? I have no idea what that is. Artists do that all the time. What am I trying? What's coming out of me? I can tell y'all don't believe me. Look at y'all going. You, you want me to prove it? How many of y'all want me to prove it to you? God made animals and didn't have that far as idea what they were. You want me to prove it to you? Tell me the book of Genesis chapter 2. I'll show you something. You think I'm joking? I'll show you something right now. 
Oh, Lord, let me finish this tonight. If you get ready, if you finish before I do, you can go home. Let, <laughs> let me finish this real quick. Genesis chapter 2. God made a horse and didn't have the foggiest idea what a horse was. Made a horse out the dirt, standing there like a mannequin. Look at me, like this. <laughs> Had no idea what it was. He just sculptured it. You don't believe me? I'll reprove it to you. Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them. Look at me. Look at me. He didn't walk them. He didn't fly them. He brought them. Watch me. Pick it up. Bring it over there. He brought them. Watch this. Unto Adam to see what he would call them. He didn't know what it was. He just made something. He said, what do you think that is, Adam? Adam's a speaking spirit. He said, that's a horse. <laughs> hey, Adam. Do you know that they were not alive when he brought them? He didn't walk them. He brought them. They were just like Adam was. Adam was creating the image of God. He was a speaking spirit like God is. Let me show you. Let me just show you. If you don't believe me, watch this. This will bless you. Watch it. And, and out of the ground, verse 19, Lord God formed every beast of the few. Every fowl of the air brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every what? Living. They weren't alive. They were just like him, formed out of the dust of the ground. And God looked at Adam and said, speak, spirit. What you going to call that? That's a horse. <laughs> he brought them. He didn't walk them. He didn't fly them. He brought them. He picked them up and brought them. And he named 500,000 species. And life came into him. And he gave you creative ability. And he says, produce life. Look at your Bible. And what he called them every living, they were just like Adam. Mannequins formed. God didn't know what they were. Eagle, fly like an eagle. Mm -hmm. A giraffe. Ooh, what's that, Lord? Looks like you just put parts on that one. That's a wildebeest. That's the leftovers. That animal looked like he is a species of all kinds. Short, long nose, short ears, funny looking tail, weird looking body. See, people thought that the animals came in the ark two by two. Heard that? That's not true. The unclean animals came two by two. God's an environmentalist. He's not even going to kill the unclean ones. The clean animals came in by sevens. You never hear that part, do you? Why? Because the devil wants you to manifest on the unclean. Go read your Bible. You'll find out that the clean animals came in by sevens. The unclean came in by two. Then they were not even like When he spoke, speak, spirit. Pow! Species, life. Because he had life in him. Just like he said, Adam, do what I do. That's why I give you dominion. That's why we're the only species on the earth that can destroy the planet. Can't you see that? Because we're speaking spirits. So, you see, uh, throw some stuff out there, look in your Bibles, and you're reading your Bible, so it, it does say something like that, but then you go whoosh, way out there. But hey, you're looking at your Bible, you trust your preacher, 
Uh, he, he preaches some decent stuff. Maybe once in a while he's entertaining. He's, he's likable. Maybe, that, maybe that's the way it is. But you're just introduced to this whole different system of a doctrine of God, doctrine of creation, doctrine of man. Uh, Benny Hinn said, when you say, I am a Christian, you are saying, I am Mashiach. That's just the Hebrew word for uh, Messiah in the Hebrew. I am a little Messiah walking on the earth. In other words, uh, you're just a little Messiah walking on the earth, in other words. That is a shocking revelation. May I say it like this? You are a little God on earth running around. Now, here's an audio clip from uh, Copeland. Good picture. God's reason for creating Adam was his desire to reproduce himself. I mean a reproduction of himself. And in the Garden of Eden, he did that. He was not a little like God. He was not almost like God. He was not um, subordinate to God even. And Adam is as much like God as you could get. Just the same as Jesus, when he came into the earth, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He wasn't a lot like God. He's God manifested in the flesh. And I want you to know something. Adam in the Garden of Eden was God manifested in the flesh. That's fun, right? That's a, a whole different take on Christmas. It was actually Adam who was God manifested in the flesh. In the same way, he said, as Jesus was. And here's the shocking part of that. His point is, that was Adam, that's you too. If you're in Christ, you are a little God. I don't have time to show you the longer clip, but you can find all this on YouTube if it just so drills you to do so. And uh, one of the ones that Benny Hinn says, uh, Jesus was the God-man. We use that terminology, truly God, truly man. Benny Hinn says, he too is a God-man. And if you're a Christian, you also are a little God-man. And so all this is stemming from this idea that you are made in the image of God, and just like God creates with his words using faith, he's given you that same power and that same dominion and that same authority to create things using your words and your power, which is your faith, which he's obligated to do for you if you ask in faith. Again, when it comes to the doctrine of Christ, uh, you can read the, the, the statements, and, and it reads very much like one of our statements of faith might read, very orthodox on the surface. But one of the central tenets of the Word of Faith movement is that Jesus was a lot like us. You've just heard that, right? Jesus was God manifested in the flesh, and according to at least that old school line of thinking in that movement, you are also God manifested in the flesh, as was Adam. And so, just like Jesus realized his power and realized his divine potential and healed and did miraculous things, you too, if you just tap into that divine potential, you can do the same things. And you'll hear a lot of that stuff through the Bethel guys as well. Uh, another one of these troubling doctrines that is part of that old school prosperity gospel copeland and others but is also very much alive in the the new school <laughs> with bethel and others is that jesus soul or spirit however you want to divide it jesus uh, immaterial part <laughs> went to hell when he died because he was a sinner 
Uh, this is a big deal for them, and it's one of those kind of central doctrines. You can look and say most of those people, if they know their word of faith, teachers and preachers, they believe this, that Jesus' soul, upon dying on the cross, his soul went to hell to complete the atonement. Another shocking claim is that Jesus needed to be born again in order to go to heaven. He became a sinner on the cross. Didn't just take on sin, but became a sinner, was condemned to hell, and through his resurrection, wasn't just raised back to life, but was actually saved, I guess by his own atonement. He, he saves himself when he rises from the dead and is born again. And so they say, Jesus says no one can see the kingdom of heaven unless they're born again. And Kenneth Copeland would say, and that includes Jesus. Uh, here's the modern, and this is the pastor of Bethel Church, as in Bethel Music, Redding, California. His name's Bill Johnson. Uh, here is him uh, claiming this very thing. I don't know, did you know that Jesus was born again? Jesus was born again. He had to be. He became sin. Why? Did he need to be begotten or born? Because he became like we were, separated from God. Because he tasted spiritual death for every man. And his spirit, an inner man, went to hell in my place. He became sin. He was made sin. Copeland. Now he's in the pit of hell. He's down there. He's in there. Suffering like no man has ever suffered. Did you know God has never, ever sent but one man to hell? His name is Jesus. Jesus Christ, he pays a price for us to be made right with God. Jesus goes to hell, I believe. He went to Hades. He went down and descended into the depths of the earth for three days, and he pays for the sin of mankind. Physical death wouldn't remove your sins. He's tasted death for every man. He's talking about tasting spiritual death. Jesus is the first person that was ever born again. Why did his spirit need to be born again? Because it was estranged from God. He was born through Mary the first time and through the resurrection the second time. He was born again. One! One! One born again human being defeated all of hell! So, you see, you read the statements of faith, generally orthodox, sounds like what we believe, but then you listen, and you get this little bit there, and this little bit there, and this little bit there, that are so completely different from historic Christianity that it, it does fall in that line of false teaching uh, or false gospel. According to these teachers, D Jesus' death did uh, pay the penalty of sin, but the emphasis is on physical healing, defeating the, quote, enemy, and financial prosperity here and now. So they do agree Jesus died for sins. But if you're Joel Osteen, and I heard him preach a piece of Romans one time about the, the things that Jesus dealt with on the cross to bring us peace with God, talking about our sin 
and the atonement and taking God's wrath for our sin and that condemnation, Osteen sort of repackages that. Yeah, sin is in there, and the condemnation stuff is in there, but what else did Jesus' death accomplish for you? Physical healing, financial prosperity, victory over your circumstances. All of that is packaged in there as well. So on the surface, yeah, Jesus died for our sins, but also all this other stuff is meant by that statement. The doctrine of Scripture is uh, along the same lines, generally evangelical and orthodox sounding. It's the Word of God. Many of them would be more conservative, inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God, yes. But, as you can tell from the preaching and from Duplantis earlier from Genesis 1, context and original meaning don't matter all that much, except when they find a really cool Hebrew or Greek word that fits what they want to say, and then they'll draw attention to it. But otherwise, um, a verse here and there, a word here and there, just thrown out there, out of context, separated from its original meaning to uh, create an entire doctrinal system around. Teachers like that, as we see, it's very clear, they like to create bizarre and find subtle nuances of whole new systems of belief. So they find little words, like Duplantis says, uh, you know, he brought them. We'll make a whole system of belief about the fact that it says he brought them. Never mind that it just means he, you know, brought them over there, or whatever else it could mean. No, what it must mean is that he brought them over there as a dead mannequin, and when Adam spoke, they came to life. Of course that's what it means. So you see this whole system of doctrine flows from this little bizarre nuance. They like to find, and they like to say this phrase, watch out for this phrase, you've never heard this before. Now, we're always learning. We're always growing in our faith. And sometimes you're going to see things in the Bible or you're going to be taught something or hear something in a sermon that you have never thought of before. But any time a preacher starts by saying, I'm going to have to change the way you've always thought about everything, there's a red flag that should go up. You've never heard this before. Only I, Pastor Matt, have brought you the key just now. Uh, to understand the entire Bible. Watch out for those people and those teachers. When it comes to revelation, not the book, but the idea, the doctrine, they believe in ongoing revelations through uh, prophecies, word of knowledge. So historical truths are easily abandoned. Again, they're not really tied down to some church history scheme or some creed or confession. And so there's no real rule of truth. As you can tell, they can just throw something out there and the people just eat it up because this is a trusted teacher, a popular preacher, or whatever. When it comes to the doctrine of salvation, uh, again, generally evangelical in terms of sin, salvation, received by grace alone, through faith alone, and eternity. The sad thing is that is so complicated, if not hindered, by the prosperity emphasis. So you might have little kernels of truth, and you might have the true gospel under there somewhere, but it's buried under all this other stuff so much that it's hard to hear in the preaching of Benny Hinn or, or Kenneth Copeland or, or Joe Osteen, for that matter. Salvation, according to the prosperity gospel, is more than just freedom from sin and hell. It's freedom from anything negative. Because you are destined for better. You hear that talk a lot with prosperity gospel preachers. Destiny. Your destiny. Moving to the next level. Overcoming. Breakthrough. 
Not, nothing wrong with those words in and of themselves, but there's, there's a key words in this movement because it's all about getting past the hurdles and the obstacles and the stuff, the ne- negativity, whatever it is. Moving on, the doctrine of salvation. Sickness, disease, and poverty. The prosperity gospel says none of that is God's will for you. Period. None of that is ever God's will for you. You have the power to overcome all of it through Christ using your words of faith. There's never a time, Bill Johnson would say, Bethel Church, when sickness is God's will for you. There's never a time when death is God's will. There's never a time when suffering is God's will. You can overcome it if you believe hard enough and declare it. Enough. So let's talk about what the Bible says very quickly. And I got the scripture references there for your benefit later. You can go look at them. According to the Bible, man is a created being, a separate created being from God. He is not a little God. In fact, in Psalm 8, verse 5, it says we've been created a little lower than even the angels. We are a separate created order. We are not divine beings when it talks about being made in God's image we are made in God's image in that we have his blessing to have dominion in those following verses he says to Adam and Eve be fruitful and multiply fill the earth take dominion over every living thing he makes them as little l lords to have little d dominion over the created order that he made not that Adam helped make or not that Adam helped speak into existence but that God made and then puts mankind separate created order little lower than the angels in charge of all creation this dominion now this is key this dominion that God gives Adam and Eve is derivative it is derivative it comes from God it is not inherent because of they're being made in his image that dominion has to be given to them by God it is not theirs because they've been duplicated as little gods it is not theirs by nature it is given to them by God God according to the Bible is not obligated to man but does whatever he wishes Psalm 115.3 God does all his holy will. The Bible also teaches us that sickness and suffering and death are and can be within the bounds of God's will. I don't know if there's ever been a prosperity gospel sermon preached from the book of Job. I think they might have a hard time with that one. When God incites Satan to bring those trials upon Job. Terrible, intense trials, suffering, pain, death of his family. I mean, takes everything from Job. Or how about Jesus? When Peter tries to keep Jesus from going to the cross, and Jesus calls Peter, Satan, get behind me, Satan. In other words, it's the Father's will for me to suffer on the cross. And it is Satan who is trying to distract me from that. Uh, Genesis fifty twenty. Joseph, uh, there with his brothers, remember, he says, what, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Not a different set of circumstances. Not that God turns it or flips it for good. 
but that he meant the same thing for good. Devil means it for evil. God means it for good. But God is nevertheless in it all. A um, lot we could say there, but we've got to move on. In fact, God uses suffering in the life of a Christian to make us more like Christ. Again, I don't know if you ever hear a prosperity gospel preacher preach on the passages that say to rejoice in our sufferings. When Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings inasmuch as they're making me more like Jesus. Uh, Do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you, Peter says, to test you because it's producing this Christ-likeness within you. There's a purpose in the pain and the trials. More importantly, I think, I think we all understand this, Jesus did not become a sinner. They have a hard time with interpreting the scriptures that way. They see he became sin, and they see he became a sinner. No, Jesus took sin on himself, and it was crucified in him on the cross. But Jesus did not become a sinner that then needed to die and go to hell to finish paying for our sins in hell. The Bible is clear that when Jesus died on the cross, his work was finished. It is accomplished, Jesus said, done, paid in full. No more payment was necessary. And when Jesus dies, he says to his father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We have no reason to think that Jesus suffered in hell as a sinner. We are saved by Christ's work from the powers of sin and death and hell, which are far greater enemies than sickness and suffering on this side of heaven. When it comes to sickness and suffering and the trials that we face on this side, um, talk about Jesus' atonement saving us from sin and death and hell does not mean that we are to expect salvation from all suffering. We're not better than Jesus. We're not better than the apostles. We're not better than the uncountable millions of Christians that have suffered for the name of Christ to say that somehow suffering is beneath a Christian. Suffering is part of what it means to be a Christian. God has not promised us health and wealth in this world. In fact, Jesus told us to expect the opposite in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble. And Paul said, all who desire to live a godly life, Second Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. The prosperity gospel simply does not match up with biblical Christianity. It doesn't match up with church history. But there is good news. God has promised all of that. Health, wealth, prosperity, healing, victory. He has promised all of that in the world to come. Paul says in Romans 8, 18, I I think that the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us on that day. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. I've been reading it a lot lately. It seems in my sermons uh, that on that day, God says, I'm making all things new, and there'll be no more suffering and no more death and no more sorrow, no more tears and no more pain. 
before the, the former things have all passed away. The prosperity gospel has this over-realized eschatology. It takes what God has promised then and brings it into the now. When the Bible says the exact opposite, expect sorrow here, expect suffering here, rejoice in suffering here, take up your cross and follow Jesus here, because life and prosperity and health and wealth beyond our wildest imagination is promised there. So speak the truth. We said this about every group so far. Ask, listen, and understand before trying to engage in debate. Make sure you're understanding what they're saying and that you're able to represent what they're saying fairly back to them. And then remember that your goal is to communicate the gospel, not to win an argument. Tricky thing about these folks is that many of these will be believers. In other words, they'll probably have a pretty biblical understanding of sin and Christ and the cross and salvation. And so this isn't like witnessing to a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness. This is sort of like talking to a brother and sister across the table. You know, those fun Thanksgiving arguments you may or may not have had. And trying to convince them that they're in something that's unhealthy for them. And helping and wanting them to see the light. But here's what I would leave you with. Just like you pray for God to open the eyes and the hearts of unbelievers to see the truth and come to Christ. We pray for those who are Christians who are being deceived by some form of false teaching to also see the light and come more in line with the truth in a church that teaches and preaches the Bible, that believes the biblical gospel. So it's a little different conversation than, say, talking to a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, but it can be very similar, and our prayer should be the same. Oh, God, open their eyes, show them the truth in your word. All right. Again, if you have any questions or anything, feel free to email, call, or text me anytime. Come by the office. I have some good books about some of this stuff. I can recommend some good resources. Uh, you can find a lot of good stuff on YouTube. Just approach with discernment that not everybody, he, not, not everybody, even those who are preaching against the prosperity gospel, are preaching the truth. Okay, so use your discernment and uh, come to me if you need any help with anything. All right, let's talk. Let's talk. Let's pray. Let's talk to Jesus. Thank you, Father, for... Uh, this opportunity to be together and to learn. I ask that you would fill us with a sense of wisdom and understanding from your word and by your Holy Spirit lead us away from all error and lead us into all truth. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.